the National Archives podcast series, Railway Disasters, an introduction, presented by Bruno Derrick. Good afternoon, everyone. First of all, I mean, although I'm talking about railway disasters, I'm already sort of extending it slightly to about railway accidents in general, really, because I suppose a disaster isn't necessarily an accident, or an accident is necessarily a disaster. Um, however, I am looking at it in terms of sort of fairly serious or noteworthy accidents and disasters as well since the railways first came along. And as far as accidents in the more general sense is concerned, if you're, the, 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 some of our records are worth pursuing on that point of view, especially if you have ancestors who worked on the railways. Many of the railway companies will have very detailed accounts, books, ledgers, minute books, etc., which do detail staffing accidents right down to cut thumbs and things like that, <laughs> sort of fairly minor accidents as well. So if you want to look at those records, you would really would need to um, know which company the person worked for, and you'd be surprised what sometimes you can find. But moving on to sort of rather more serious accidents. Of course, railways came along in the 1820s and 1830s. Photography wasn't widely used in publications or newspapers or magazines, really, until the latter part of the 19th century. Certainly until the 1860s and 70s, the Newspapers and magazines tend to employ artists to record the scenes of disasters, and they're often very, very skilled. And they went there and they solemnly recorded everything down there. I think sometimes they possibly exaggerated the content, but the, uh, that's typical of the sort of illustration you can come across in magazines such as Illustrated London News, which is kept here. There is a section on the records information leaf at number 69 on railways concerning railway accidents, which I plan to expand upon as well. So you can pick up that leaflet here or you can download it. These are the principal record series you'll be working for if you are interested in railway accidents in general or if you're just trying to find details of a specific accident. Uh, railway inspector's reports and an MT114, MT6, AN13, that's really for the um, post-nationalisation period. Uh, but the chief series is Rail 1053. If you uh, have just got, say, an academic interest in a subject, there's a number of different ways into finding out what information you have got. And you can just do a basic search like that, railways and accidents, limiting the search to rail, and you get various hits coming up. Of course, that won't necessarily bring up everything. I mean, as I'll be mentioning later on, you, find, you can find material all over the place among records, you know, for example, in um, Home Office records or Metropolitan Police records, and further fields, Foreign Office and Colonial Office as well, relating to accidents, rail accidents abroad. The, the catalogue description won't necessarily be comprehensive, so it would still entail searching around and seeing what else you can find. That's another one. You could just do railways and disasters without limiting it to rail. And again, you'll get a number of uh, different records coming up, say, uh, Ministry of Agriculture Fishery and Foods, for example, or Foreign Office, Ministry of Health Records. If you're looking for photographs of railway accidents, so the, the scenes of the accidents, the copy, copy records, which have been largely catalogued, I believe, um, are certainly worth considering. And you could just put the name of the accident in and limit it down to copy, see what comes up. One project we're working on at the moment, I'm working on, is to catalogue all the names of, uh, all, all the details of railway accidents in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland from the 1850s up to, well, the 1970s. And we've got up to the 1880s so far. So you can search on the catalogue 
Oh, the, these records are on Rail 105.3, so you can just search on the catalogue under Rail 105.3 by putting in, say, the, the, the place of the accident or the date of the accident or the name of the railway company involved. And so you'll get up, and so we're recording where the accident occurred and um, it, how many, sometimes how many casualties there were. Rail 105.3 are quite interesting records. They were, these are files, they're, they're reports on the accidents themselves were prepared by or usually on behalf of retired Royal Engineers officers. And some people did the actual investigations and then these reports were prepared and signed by two or three officers at any given time. The reports were then submitted to Parliament, or then published by the Board of Trade and submitted to Parliament. Now they didn't record details of every single accident. They, they certainly recorded the details of the most severe accidents. But also sometimes the accidents when there are no casualties at all, just just when they, they thought there are lessons to be learnt from what happened here in order to prevent future accidents. One thing you notice looking at these records is that, uh, well, good many of the accidents are just caused by human error. And so however, however many, um, less, however many uh, reports were prepared, to an extent, then as now, you can only le legislate that to a, a certain extent. You'll find, I mean, you'll find... Uh, well, all, all sorts of causes of accidents. Animals straying onto lines is quite a common one. One other one was, a uh, big famous one was, um, or common one, was when the, the railways had a very big social effect. And one, one consequence was that people in sort of northern parts of England could actually go away on holidays for day trips to places like Blackpool or Scarborough. And these were very popular. So you'd get on the trains and there'd be, the trains would be wildly oversubscribed and people would be hanging onto the sides and falling off the trains as they went along there. So they weren't sort of joyriding in the, in the modern sense. They actually either had paid, the, the trains were so crowded that they were just crowding on there. And some of them sadly didn't make it, and reports were prepared on things like that. And they are fairly uh, detailed, and provide a lot of information. Anyone who's interested in the sort, of, the sort of mechanical histories of railways, the designs of railway carriages, tenders, engines, etc., should go to Rail 1053 because you often get some very fine drawings of the railways, of the engines actually involved in the accidents, and also maps of the accident sites of the accidents, you know, so you get a fairly clear idea of what actually took place. There, for example, this is in Rail 1053-57. It's a map of uh, Colonel Yolland, ex Royal Engineers, did a report on the collision of the Great Northern Railway near Hatfield on the 4th of January 1878 and that map um, accompanies his report. Sticking to the Rail 1053 for the minute, these reports later on on accidents on the Cardiff Railway and Cheshire Lines in May, June and July 1901 and it gives the date at 10.40pm so and so who was getting on got bars engaged in counting in the sidings etc. It gives the number of like... Sorry? Oh yeah, I was trying to read out my own, the pin's very sort of my screen here, I can't actually read it all, but it, it, it's very detailed about the actual, um, the time, the number of wagons involved, and exactly what happened. Here's another one here. Mrs. Corcoran stated that she had been cleaning the lavatory compartment of a composite coach which was standing on number one road in the station. This is on the, the Great Southern and Western Railway in Ireland in August 1910, close to Kingsbridge Station. She stated that as she was walking from the lavatory into the compartment, another vehicle was shunted sharply against a composite coach, with the result that she was thrown violently against an armrest. Two of her ribs were broken. 
So that, <laughs> that wasn't a very that serious an accident, but it was seen fit to send a report on that. And sticking in, again, it's still in Rail 153, these accidents go back to the earlier, the earliest days of railways. And there were quite a lot of um, fairly famous accidents. By the way, one cause accident, so I mean, there are numerous causes, but, and the different railway companies had different practices. But one cause was that the, the, the practice of locking train carriages from the outside so that people inside these sealed compartments couldn't get out because it was thought that the temptation to get out of a moving train would be too strong. So you lock the doors from the outside and if the train crashed, then people couldn't get out. And that is, a, that is why so many of them died. Uh, there are other reasons as well. Not all railway companies adopted the same practice. But there was, and you can find details of this in Rail 1053, um, a famous accident at Staplehurst in Kent in 1865 which um, involved on the South Eastern Railway, which involved Charles Dickens. Now, uh, I've been reliably informed that the reason why Dickens didn't give information to the inquest and didn't actually report, uh, <laughs> just wrote up a very vainglorious account of it, which was fairly vainglorious, I'll, I'll read it out in a second, was because he was travelling back from France on that train with his girlfriend from France uh, and, and her mother to give it, make it look slightly more respectable. Um, so they, and the train crashed, and again, that's an account of the accident itself. But if you bear with me a second, he sent a letter a few days later. Now, the thing about Charles Dickens is that if you've, I don't know how much you know about him, but when he used to do his public readings in the 1860s and 70s, he used to work himself up into an enormous sweat of passion. And he'd be pulling his hair out and, uh, Sometimes sort of the more nervous people attending lectures had to sort of walk out because they couldn't handle the emotion he put into his story. So well, if I read out this letter, I won't try and do it in the same way. Um, but he says, uh, he wrote it from Gad's Hill, and he says, um, My dear Mitten, I should have written to you yesterday or the day before if I'd been quite up to writing. I was in the only carriage that did not go over into the stream. It was caught upon the turn by some of the ruin of the bridge, and hung suspended and balanced in an apparently impossible manner. Two ladies were my fellow passengers, an old one and a young one. This is exactly what passed. You may judge from it the precise length of the suspense. Suddenly we were off the rail, and beating the ground as the car of a half-emptied balloon might. The old lady cried out, My God! And the young one screamed. I caught hold of them both. The old lady sat opposite and the young one on my left, and said, We can't help ourselves, but we can be quiet and composed. Pray don't cry out. The old lady immediately answered, Thank you. Rely upon me. Upon my soul, I will be quiet. We were then all tilted down together in a corner of the carriage and stopped. I said to them thereupon, You may be sure nothing worse can happen. Our danger must be over. Will you remain here without stirring while I get out of the window? They both answered quite collectedly, yes, and I got out without the least motion, notion of what had happened. Fortunately, I got out with great caution and stood upon the step. Looking down, I saw the bridge gone and nothing below me but the line of rail. Some people in the other two compartments were madly trying to plunge out of the window and had no idea that there was an empty swampy field 15 feet down below them and nothing else. The two guards, one with his face cut, were running up and down on the downside of the bridge, 
which was not torn up, quite wildly. I called out to them, look at me, do stop an instant and look at me and tell me whether you don't know me. It's a slightly bizarre thing to say in the circumstances. Um, uh, one of them answered, we know you very well, Mr. Dickens. Then I said, my good fellow, for God's sake, give me your key and send one of those labours here and I'll empty this carriage. We did it quite safely by means of a plank or two and when it was done I saw all the rest of the train except the two baggage vans down in the stream. I got into the carriage again for my brandy flask, took off my travelling hat for a basin, climbed down the brickwork and filled my hat with water. Suddenly I came upon a staggering man covered with blood. I think he must have been flung clean out of his carriage with such a frightful cut across the skull that I couldn't bear to look at him. I poured some water over his face and gave him some drink, then gave him some brandy and laid him down on the grass, and he said, I am gone, and died afterwards. Then I stumbled over a lady lying on her back against a little pollard tree with the blood streaming over her face, which was lead colour, in a number of distinct little streams from the head. I asked her if she could swallow a little brandy, and she just nodded, and I gave her some and left her for somebody else. The next time I passed her, she was dead. Then a man examined at the inquest yesterday, who evidently had not the least remembrance of what really passed, came running up to me and implored me to help find his wife, who was afterwards found dead. See, <laughs> you are the labouring at this point, I think. Um, no imagination can conceive the ruin of the carriages or the extraordinary weights under which the people were lying, or the complications into which they were twisted up among the iron and wood and mud and water. I don't want to be examined at the inquest. Well, I've always told you one reason why I don't want to be examined, but I don't want to be examined at the inquest, and I don't want to write about it. I could do no good either way, and I could only seem to speak about it to myself, which, of course, I'd rather not do. I'm keeping very quiet here. I have a, I don't know what to call it, constitutional, I suppose, presence of mind, and was not in the least fluttered at the time. I instantly remembered that I had the manuscript of the number with me and clambered back into the carriage for it. So he got his book back. But in writing these scanty words of recollection, I feel the shake and am obliged to stop. So that's quite a, well, it's very Dickensian, that is, a very dramatic account of what these would entail. And um, it would have been well, pretty horrific, I'm sure. And they, 10 people died in that particular accident. And then earlier on, I mentioned to you about the Illustrated London News. And soon afterwards, they, and we've got that here in the series... ZPER 34, this is ZPER 3446. They have an account of um, the accident itself. There's another accident as well at a place called Rednall at about the same time. So they brought it together. And again, an exhaustive account, which I've actually written up, mainly because of the Dickens Association, and I've placed it on your archives. So if you're ever looking at your archives, if you just search under Charles Dickens or under Staplehurst, you can find the full account as written up in the um, Illustrated London News. You can see about 19th century writing, you often notice that it's uh, often very verbose and also often quite sort of bloodthirsty in a way you wouldn't see in modern journalism. It's, it, it doesn't sort of flinch on the detail. And, and as I said, they certainly summoned along to illustrate the scene as well. So I would recommend that you had a look at that if you get a chance to do so. On the theme of late Victorian train disasters, there's another one in uh, Abergelly in 1868. If you're interested in that particular disaster, you could just search on our catalogue, just under Abergelly, if you like. 
limiting the searches to, shall we say, 1868 to 1872. And I've given you a few URL links relating to that particular accident, including extracts from the Times. And the full account of the report as submitted to the Board of Trade in Rail and Centre Parliament in Rail 1053. I can give you a brief account of this of Hamlet Abigaili, only three years after Staplehurst. On August 20th, 1868, at 7.30am, the London and North Western Railway's Irish Mail train left Euston Station in London for Holyhead. It pulled four passenger carriages, a mail van and a travelling post office. At 11.30am in Chester, it collected four additional passenger carriages that were attached immediately behind the locomotive. After an hour, the train was approaching Abigaili on the North Wales coastline on the Chester and Holyhead Railway. At the same time, at Clanvillas, to the west of Abigaili, railway workers shunted cargo trucks from the main line to the sidings. During the shuffling, they had to leave six trucks with the brake van on the main line. Two of the trucks carried bar barrels of paraffin. When some of the trucks were shunted against them, the brakes in the brake van slipped and trucks began to run away down the incline towards the Irish Mail. Engine driver Arthur Thompson saw the trucks speeding towards the train from behind the curve of the seawall. He turned off steam and threw the engine into reverse, but it was too late. He jumped just before the inevitable collision, suffering serious injuries. When the cargo trucks collided with the engine, the paraffin exploded and firing go off the steam locomotive and the first four carriages, killing 32 passengers and the firemen in a matter of seconds. A number of labourers ran to the scene from a nearby quarry and formed a human train trying to quench the flames with seawater. However, they failed to save anyone. The bodies were so charred that only three of them could later be identified. The victims were buried in a mass grave at St Michael's Churchyard in Abigaili, with the London and North Western Railway Company paying all funeral expenses. During the inquest, the coroner received an anonymous, an anonymous letter that put the blame on the Fenians. The Irish rebels had supposedly tried to assassinate the wife and servants of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. The inquest did not find any evidence to support this, and the letter was declared a hoax. So, there you are. <laughs> the, the Fenian suggestion is quite interesting because there had been some, what are called the Fenian outrages, in, mainly in London in 1867. So they were a bit nervous at the time, but there was no evidence to support that. It is just one of those accidents which were reasonably frequent at that time, I'm afraid. And they, for a number of different reasons, the casualty toll was normally fairly high. So this is a, a melancholy subject. And again, the Illustrated London News covered the accident, wrote it up, and you get a sort of division of what the accident, what the circumstances of the accident were. Twenty odd years later, again, <laughs> while we're talking about big disasters, there's another big one at Armagh in Ireland when a train stalled on the hill. The Armagh rail disaster happened on 12th of June 1889 near Armagh when a crowded Sunday school excursion train had to negotiate a steep incline. The steam locomotive was unable to complete the climb and the train stalled. The train crew decided to divide the train and take forward the front portion, leaving the rear portion on the running line. The rear portion had inadequate brake power and ran back down the gradient, colliding with a following train. At the time, it was the worst rail disaster in Europe and it remains the fourth worst in the United Kingdom. 78 people died. So again, the, the full account of the accident will be in rail 1053. And there is a photograph in copy one 
of the scene of the disaster Armar, which is quite graphic, I think. So you can see what you can see what they mean by the incline there. And another big disaster I'd like to talk about now, a very famous one, was at Quinton's Hill in 1915. Now this isn't widely known about really because partly because it's the first world war is taking place at the time and casualties were very high anyway and the casualties on this accident were actually soldiers who were going on the way to the um well they're heading down towards Gallipoli so a number of them may, may not have made it anyway but the if you're interested to read the full details of the accident again you go to rail 1053 we haven't got around to cataloging that yet, but uh, initially you could just search on the catalogue under Quintin's Hill, and there you are. You get some indication there of the records we have on that particular subject. Quintin's Hill rail disaster occurred on the 22nd of May 1915 at Quintin's Hill, which is quite near Gretna on the Scottish border. An, an intermediate signal box on what was the, then the West Coast Main Line. Um, it involved five trains, and the crash killed... 226, or some people say 227 people, and is easily the worst ever rail crash that's ever happened in this country. It's not really that well known about because most of the victims are soldiers travelling, as I said, on the way to France, and at that time, certainly news from the front, and news such as that, which would have had quite bad effect on morale, was uh, the details were very suppressed. Although they did come out, they were published at the time, but there wasn't a, a great deal of publicity about it. And the afterwards... The, it's one of the few major, the few occasions when um, railway workers involved were prosecuted and um, went to prison. Although, oddly enough, uh, after they'd been in prison, they, they went back to their old jobs, working near the site of the disaster, which they had been, I'm afraid, responsible for causing. Uh, but the... Uh, if you want, to, I mean, there are a number of ways you could pursue this. I tried to find a wartime of the battalion of Scots Fusiliers involved in the accident, who uh, haven't been able to find that. But I found the details of soldiers who died on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website. It just says they all died at home, which is slightly misleading because they didn't. They are uh, <laughs> they're on the way to the front, but they, they never made it there. Um, the details, actually, very briefly, is that a distracted signalman forgot about a stationary local train that he'd shunted onto the opposite running line, the up line, to let an express train following on the down line through, as both of the passing loops were already occupied. This led to a collision between a special loop train, which was hauled by a Caledonian Macintosh 440 number 121 engine, on the up line and the local train. Immediately afterwards, the express train ploughed into the wreckage goods train in the down loop and the train of coal empties in up loop also became embroiled, embroiled in the wreckage. That's quite complicated language here. Total 226 people died. Uh, most of them uh, formerly territorial soldiers in the 7th Battalion of the Royal Scots, part of the 52nd Lowland Division. Only 60 made it to the Royal Call next morning. Now, the uh, one quite sad uh, well, outcome of that story was that the soldiers themselves who survived were then went down to Liverpool, which is the nearest big port, and they're obviously in a shocked and uh, unhappy condition, and they're very dirty and filthy because of being, being in the mud and all the chaos up there. And when they got there, some of the locals assumed they were German prisoners of war and threw stones at them because their condition was there. <laughs> and the initial plan was to send them, just to send them straight down to Gallipoli anyway. But eventually, 
wiser councils prevailed, and they were sent back to Scotland. And most of them were then, oddly enough, were then put into a battalion which suffered very few losses for the next, for the next couple of years. So, in other words, uh, <laughs> the, 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 it, the bad luck of that well, it didn't continue necessarily. Um, and most of them say, uh, didn't, didn't get past uh, Quinton's Hill, Gretna in Scotland on that day. If you want to read the full details, again, go to Rail 1053 and you'll get an account which, broadly speaking, does show the liability or culpability of the railway workers in question. This is one aspect which is you would probably need to consider when looking at um, matters relating to our accidents is compensation. So compensation from sorry, Lieutenant James P. Bonner involved in the accident at Quintins Hill. And of course, like with a lot of our records, the, re the reason why the records were kept were because of the financial implications. It wasn't, uh, for example, like you know, the same reason why soldiers' records were kept, because they were made a financial liability. So you find lots of files relating to army service or disasters or accidents when the actual financial liability of the authorities, in this case the War Office or the Ministry of Transport, have a the extent to which they were um, applicable. And here we have an introduction to the report on the accident which shows that the outbreak of fire was not caused by the gas which the carriages were lighted, but by the embers from the firebox and the coal from the overturned tenders. That led to a conflagration. And later on in the same report, the responsibility of the accident lies entirely with the two signal men, G. Meakin and J. Tinsley. And then they go on to add, Men engaged in routine work where the conditions may easily become dangerous, either to themselves or others, sometimes get a loose way of working and habitually neglect regulations which have been laid down for their own or others' protection. So it's really just a question of negligence, and most case, on most occasions, perhaps nothing would have happened as a consequence. In this particular instance, the consequences were fairly deadly. Now, another big disaster, well, actually, it was largely averted. That Soham in 1944 in Cambridgeshire, and that's the site of what happened. But in fact, it was a catastrophe which didn't take place. And the report we have here is in Rail 1053 for 1944. And that gives an account of what happened. But if I may, I'll read out from another account which basically paraphrases what's in there and it's all about a driver called Mr Gimbert who was on that train on that day. It happened in the small hours of June 2nd 1944. A driver from March in Cambridgeshire, Benjamin Gimbert by name, was lost to take a train load of bombs from March to Whitemore by way of Ely and Ipswich. He had 4,500 pound bombs in the first wagon, 74 more in the second, a load of detonators in a third, and after that some 48 more wagons, all filled with high explosives. For an engine that had been one of the War Department eight-coupled locomotives, um, that was one of the ugliest creatures that ever ran on a British railway. They started at 12.15am and made their slow way to Ely, through the junction, and then on by single line through Soham to Fordham. All went well until they were approaching Soham, when the driver looked out and saw that the first wagon was on fire. He knew well enough what the train contained, and he and his mate might just have had time to get down and run for it. But they did not choose to do so, for they are not that kind of men. 
He stopped the train carefully, well short of the station, and sent his fireman to uncouple the burning wagon from the rest of the train, remembering to tell him to take a cold hammer with him in case the coupling was too hot to touch. This was successfully done, and driver Gimbert then proceeded with his blazing wagon into the station, intending to take it some distance along the line, where it would be well clear of all the buildings, to uncouple it from the engine there, while he and his mate hoped to be able to take the train, the engine onto Fordham. The signal box at Surm is on the station, and the, and the signalman, seeing that something was wrong, came down on the platform as his duty was. The driver held him. Sailor, have you got anything between here and Fordham? Where's the mail? That question was never answered. At that moment of asking it, the wagon exploded. It blew the engine's tender to pieces, killed the signalman and the fireman, and Gimbert himself recovered consciousness lying on the far platform badly injured. Virtually every window in Surum was smashed and the station itself completely wrecked. The crater underneath the wagon was 15 feet deep and 65 feet wide. For this, the driver and fireman received the George Cross, the fireman, alas, posthumously. And there is, of course, no doubt that all of their courage and resource saved the town of Surum. For that, had that whole train exploded, as it must have done if the blazing wagon had not been uncoupled and drawn well away from the rest, there could have been nothing left of the town. One hardly knows what to admire more, the courage or, cool, or the coolness, but, as has, already been said, as has already been said shows, there was hardly any driver who had not, under the same circumstances, have acted in exactly the same way. Today, the new Surum station carries a memorial plaque in honour of Fireman Nightall and Driver Gimbert with the inscription, The devotion to duty of these brave men save the town of Surum from grave destruction. So, you can imagine the impact of a train with 4,500-pound bombs going into it. I mean, the Surum, I think, a population of perhaps 10 to 15,000 people. They would probably all have died, I suspect. And this occurred just prior to D-Day, when there's a great quantity of ordnance and munitions being shifted around the country. Uh, but he saved the town. And so that's a rather better story than some of the other ones I've been referring to. Another very famous disaster, well, the, probably the, one of the most famous post-war ones, really, was uh, the exact accident at Harrow and Wilston in 1952. It, this was described as the worst peacetime crash in Great Britain and it was obviously the, the one like Quinton said 1915 was wartime. The crash which took place at 8.19 in the morning of 8th of October 1952 was a double collision involving three trains. The 0731 local passenger train from train to Euston Station, London, was standing on the up main platform of Harold Wilson Station when it was hit in the air in the rear at 56 mile, 50 to 60 miles per hour by the 12.15 express sleeper train from Perth in Scotland. Seconds after the first explosion, the double-headed 8 o'clock express from London, Euston to Liverpool and Manchester, which was travelling at about 50 miles an hour, ran into the wreckage strewn across the down line, main line. Its locomotives were deflected to the left, ploughed across the down fast platform and came to rest across the electrified local lines opposite, opposite. Its carriages, which overran the wreckage from the first collision, brought down part of the station footbridge. All six lines through the station were blocked by the collision. Rescue work took several days as the survivors had to be extricated from, extricated from the piled-up wreckage of three trains, and 112 people died in that accident. And it was a, it was a very serious accident. I mean, it was one of the, 
well, one of the worst disasters, and, and it's certainly one of the worst uh, disasters in the post-war period, because it, at the time, I think a lot of people were assuming that railway travel was pretty safe, and railways were the future, if you like, alongside cars as well. But the, uh, it was, you know, it had a bit of, uh, it, it had a salutary effect, if you like, and uh, lots of American servicemen were on the train, and also near, station nearby joined in the rescue attempts. And so the files refer to that. And of course, we've got an inquiry into the accident, looking into everything which happened, giving eyewitness testimony. And then, uh, but, and so, I mean, that, that was obviously uh, a very significant accident, only 50 or 50, 60 years ago, and 50 or 55 years ago. But the, as I said earlier, not all our accident reports refer to grave um, uh, accidents or grave serious accidents. And you'll find them all over this country and also abroad as well. And here's a report here on, a, on an accident on the 9th of December 1935 when a goods train consisting of 18 vans of cocoa en route from Kumasi to Takoradi was derailed at mile 117 near Obwasi in Ashanti, which is in the Gold Coast. And no one was injured, but certainly from the point of view of the colonial office, the loss sustained as a result of the accident is estimated at £7,000. So that, again, it's the financial implications which they do want to consider. And on the same vein, here is Control Commission for Germany in the British-occupied area of Germany after the war, an account of an accident involving travelling train R147 with derailed locomotive a short distance from Recklinghausen Sud train station. Again, you'll get quite a detailed account of what happened. So, of course, if you're... If you're the, this is just an indication of what you can find. You can also look in, for example, if you're interested in that particular subject, you could look in the indexes to files related to the German Control Commission after the war, look in details of other accidents as well, because as the British had assumed responsibility for that part of Germany, they would have assumed responsibility for reporting on all accidents and other noteworthy events. Most railway workers in the 19th and 20th centuries were aware of the risks entailed in their jobs. And the, in order to become eligible for the benefits of the Royal Benevolent Institution, they had to subscribe. And in the, in the event of accidents, railway staff and former railway staff and their families could apply to the institution to be granted money in the event of death or injuries resulting from railway accidents. So it's worth looking in Rail 1166 to try and find out if, if so, you had an ancestor who worked on the railways to see whether any members of their family applied for relief or hardship relief in the immediate aftermath of an accident. Railway staff magazines for details of accidents and details of staff involved in matters relating to compensation and memorials, again, are worth consulting. If you know the name of the company, search up under, search, or if you know the name of the railway company, you could just search under ZPER on the catalogue. So it could be, for example, and the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway, and most of them had staff magazines. And they often are, do have a lot of information in them, like, especially when people were retired, they'll give an account of their careers and photographs of them as well. But they'll get reminiscences in there of accidents, reminiscences of disasters, uh, recollections of people who were involved, and sometimes after an accident, might get more details of railway personnel involved, and like where they came from, their details of their home addresses, their families, etc. So that is a fairly brief analysis of records we have on this subject.
it's a slightly uh, <laughs> depressing subject as well, if you're in one sense. Well, but it's all part of social history, it's all part of the history of the railways. And a lot of these accidents, such as the Tay Bridge disaster, have gone down in folklore now as well, I think. So if you are interested in researching a particular railway company or a railway disaster, I do need to know the date of the, date of the disaster and the location. But you can look at things like Rail 1053, which might help you to pinpoint if you can plough through those and what tell you when it actually happened as well. So that's worth considering. But you do get quite a lot of questions asked about these subject matters. And I, I, I think looking at these records, you often get, an, as I said earlier on, it, the, the main cause of these accidents was, was just straightforward human error, really. So they, they did these very exhaustive reports, but it didn't necessarily, you can't, say, legislate against human error. So, but they're interesting records to work with and to look at. So, but the main thing to remember, train travel is always very safe. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was pretty safe back even then, but it didn't, uh, unfortunately, given the technology of the time, when you had disasters, they could be sort of fairly catastrophic disasters. So we're getting large numbers of casualties. This event was recorded live on the 9th of July 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.